You're listening to Brains On, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. Hmm. Um, Bob? What's going on here? Well, I was playing my favorite computer game. You know the one, where all the characters are fluffs of cotton candy, and everything is slowed down ten times. So it's kind of just like watching clouds? Oh, oh yeah. It's still up on your screen. Uh, is it still happening, or did your screen freeze? Honestly, it's kind of hard to tell with that game. No, my screen is frozen. I was on the very last level, and I can't tell if my progress got saved. So now you're switching the lights on and off over and over? Well, I heard computers communicate in signals that are on or off. Binary, I think it's called. I'm trying to tell it to save. Hmm. Doesn't seem like it worked yet. How about if we help? Yes. I don't know if I'll ever be able to get to this level again. Okay, Bob, you stick with the light switch. I'll... I'll open and close this door. How about this? And I'll sit in front of the computer and alternately yell, Yes! No! Yes! Thanks, guys. Yes! I'm sure we'll get through to my computer this way. No! Uh. You're listening to Brains On from American Public Media. I'm Molly Bloom, and hold on to your speakers, everybody. I'm here with a fellow Molly from Maine. Hi, Molly. Hi, Molly. I love a double Molly show. Same. Shout out to technology for bringing our fabulous Molly Club together. It is so true. And to record this show, we're talking on Zoom, on our computers, and it's really them that's making all of this possible. And so we're making this episode all about them. First, let's get clear on what exactly computers are. Great choice. Harvey! How could this episode be complete without our omnipresent virtual voice assistant? Mark recently updated my rhyming package. I prepared a limerick about what separates computers from non-computers. Is now a good time to share it? Please! Computers accept information. They process without deviation. They can also store all kinds of great lore, like photos sent from the space station. Nice rhymes, Harvey. So computer has to be able to take information you give it, follow instructions about what to do with that information, and store its work. Hmm, so if you give me information, like a brownie recipe, and I follow the recipe's instructions, then store the brownies in my belly, am I a computer? No, you are not a machine. Also, your processes are nowhere near as consistent as a computer's processes. When you made brownies last week, you left them in the oven for three hours. True. Somehow they were still okay. Unlike humans, computers always follow instructions. We do the exact steps of our instructions. We follow the exact order of our instructions. We stop exactly when the instructions say stop. For example, 
I would be happy to set a timer for you next time you bake. Brownies are best when they are baked for exactly forty-seven minutes and twenty-three seconds. Okay, thanks, Harvey. Let me know if you have any other limerick needs. Bye, Harvey. Between phones, tablets, laptops, we're surrounded by computers these days. So, Molly, what's your favorite thing to do on a computer of any size? I can't decide. Either playing games with my friends or writing. Ooh, so like writing stories on like a, on a Word document? Yeah, I always use Google Docs. I've got thousands. <laughs> wow, that's so cool. So like when you get a new idea for a story, you just like open up a new one? Yeah, I do that and a lot of school assignments. We do a lot of writing. Very cool. And what kind of games do you like to play? I like playing Among Us with friends. It's really fun to lie. Brains <laughs> on. <laughs> so like Harvey mentioned, computers are brilliant at following instructions the same way over and over again. But they can still do so many different things. We can use them to draw or play games like you mentioned. Or play music. They pull facts off of the internet. Like, did you know that bonnethead sharks are kind of omnivores? They can eat seagrass along with crabs and fish. Um, no. Wow. Well, computers also save all of our files, like documents and videos. All the photos you took of your cat in a bonnet? Like a bonnethead cat. To do all those things, your computer uses instructions, like we mentioned. Those instructions are called programs. People write those instructions using a language that computers can understand, which is called computer code. And those instructions tell the guts of your computer what to do. Which brings us to the question that you sent to us, Molly. I wanted to know how computers fit so much information in such a small space. It is a really great question. Computers are really doing so much with so very little space. Well, Brains On producer Manika Wilhelm looked into this for us. Hello. And let me first just say... I really looked into this. Like, I sent emails, and I made requests, and I downloaded files, and I'm so thrilled to finally get to open them all up for you two. All of them? Yeah. Between the files and the emails, I think I have, like, 44,647,283 different things. Maybe we could just hear about, like, the most relevant ones? Yeah, hmm, maybe I should save some of these puppies for future projects. Okay, well, in that case, let's start with how our computers store information. Because it's unique. If you think about how books keep information in words, and paintings keep information in colors and shapes, computers store information in just two options, zeros and ones, on or off. It's called binary code. In our computers, everything that's happening comes from millions of little ons and offs. Yes. So for example, take typing a letter. If you hit the letter A, your computer actually stores the A you typed as a binary number. 01100001. And if you type an I next? Inside of your computer, that I becomes 01101001. So inside a computer, AI is 011000001011001. And in a game of Scrabble, AI spells a two letter word meaning three toed sloth. Two points. Nice. So your computer has a specific eight digit binary number for each letter you type. 
When you're texting on your phone or typing on a keyboard, there are a bunch of ones and zeros popping up behind the scenes. Wow. But also, isn't it more complicated to use eight numbers for each letter? I can definitely type the letter A faster than I can write the numbers 01100001. That's totally true. But for computers, the zeros and ones end up being faster. To store that letter A in binary, it takes a computer mm, one or two nanoseconds. That's two billionths of a second. The beauty of binary is that it lets you store a lot of different information in a really simple way, with on or off switches. We give our computers so much different information. We type letters, we take pictures, we click, we scroll. And if you can store all of that different information using just on or off switches, you can use the same switches to do many, many different things. And you can do those things quickly without mistakes. So using binary means that computers can be simpler, more flexible, and faster. Wow. But if there are eight ones and zeros for a single letter, there must be millions in a whole article or website. Wouldn't that take up a ton of space? Yes and no. We found some really amazing ways to shrink those ones and zeros, those on and off switches, so that we can fit tons and tons in a small space. In fact, the computer has taken quite a journey to get to where it is now. So let's take a look at an early computer and a really, really giant computer. Ready to do a bit of a computer time hop? Sure. Our journey starts in 1834 in England. We're here to talk about the very first machine that counts as a computer. Ooh, <coughs> kind of smog. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <coughs> At this point in history, making stuff with big new machines is all the rage. Factories are churning out fabrics and glass windows and a cool new invention called cement. Electricity hasn't been discovered yet. Lots of these new machines run on burning coal, which explains the air. Welcome. I'm Ada Lovelace. Don't worry, that smoggy feeling will go away soon. You can think of the damage to your respiratory system as a souvenir from this time. Ada Lovelace is a mathematician. She's working with another mathematician named Charles Babbage on a machine. They call it the analytical engine. It's designed to have a bunch of little wheels in different stacks with rods and levers connecting them together. And fully built, it would be about the size of two white rhinos standing in a line. We want to do more math with fewer mistakes. So the analytical engine will follow instructions to do specific calculations the same way each time. Sound familiar? Just like our computers. I was actually inspired by another machine of our time, a weaving loom that weaves threads together to make fabric. It works in a fascinating way. The loom can follow simple instructions to weave different designs. And just as that loom weaves beautiful cloth, our analytical engine will weave beautiful math. The loom Ada is talking about follows instructions on punched cards. So picture a rectangular card and then a bunch of holes punched in rows. And I've worked out a way to use punched cards with the analytical engine in a similar way. And remember, there's no electricity. So to do calculations, the analytical engine's wheels and levers tick together to do math. Each wheel has numbers around its edges, a little bit like a clock, so that when a wheel turns, it's actually storing numbers as it does calculations. Well, it would if we ever built the whole thing. Yeah, Ada and Charles never quite finished a whole assembly, but their designs are very comprehensive. This is the first machine designed to check off all the requirements of a computer. You feed it a punch card. So it takes in information, check. It does what the punch card says to do. Follows instructions, check. 
And its wheels hold on to information as it works. Stories info? Check. All right, that's probably all the smog we need for today. So next, let's head to one of the first computers to be totally electronic. The age of motoring gets another lift, this time from the helicopter. We're going forward about a century, to 1946, in the U.S. World War II has just ended. Most people don't have TVs in their homes, so if you want to watch something on a screen, you have to head to the movie theater. And that movie ticket will cost you roughly 42 cents. But we're not going to the movies. We're going to see a big, giant computer. It's called the ENIAC. Ah, did someone say yak? Well, I'll come with you. I'm a yak too, see? Wait, where did that yak come from? Huh, I must have sent an email asking if it was possible to visit the ENIAC, but maybe I left off the ENI and just got a yak. Whoops. But the yak seems nice enough. Sure, Yak. We're heading to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia to see the ENIAC. Oh, great. And the ENIAC is like an eensy-weensy yak, right? Oh, yeah. It's actually not yak-related at all. It's a machine, and there is nothing small about it. ENIAC stands for Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. John Mockley and J. Presper Eckert invented it. All of its parts take up a giant room. It's so big, you could park four school buses inside the room and still have a little bit of space left over. Ah, oh, and who doesn't love a good bus ride? Also, I have no idea what a computer is, see? Eckert and Mockley have spent the last few years building the ENIAC to do math for the military. To send it information, you flip switches and plug cables into different parts of the machine. And then it follows instructions depending on which parts are connected together. There are six people who set up these instructions for ENIAC, and they're all women. Kathleen McNulty, Betty Jean Jennings, Betty Snyder, Marlon Westkoff, Fran Bielis, and Ruth Lichterman. The ENIAC runs calculations way faster than any other computer so far, because it's running calculations with electricity, which moves faster than anything physical. So it can add or subtract thousands of numbers each second. Why does it have to be giant? Why can't it be incy-weensy, huh? And why can't it be a yak? Well, to see why the ENIAC is big overall, let's look at just one part of it. To store information, it uses these things called vacuum tubes. They're glass tubes, and they can be set to on or off, similar to how our computers now work in on or off. Each tube is roughly the size of a light bulb, and there are roughly 18,000 of these tubes. So picture 18,000 bulbs. Ah, did you say 18,000? Wowzers! Yeah, and there are lots of other pieces that ENIAC needs to work. It's got way more parts than those 18,000 bulbs. All of them are much bigger than computer parts today. So it's really big. And around the time of the ENIAC, there are other computers that are just behemoths too. I like to think of them as technological megafauna. Just before ENIAC, there's a machine called the Atnasov Berry computer. It's a lightweight for its time, clocking in at 300 pounds. Take the Harvard Mark I. It's 8 feet tall, 51 feet long, and weighs 5 tons. That's as much as three medium-sized cars. There's another computer that's actually just called Colossus. Look at here, I have a cousin named Colossus, too. And I have a cousin called Anna. That's me. Anyways, now the computers that we carry around in our pockets are way more powerful than ENIAC, so it's easy to lose sight of how amazing early computers were. But for their time, they could do bigger, better stuff than ever before. For example, there is one kind of math problem that took engineers about 12 hours to do before ENIAC, 
And with ENIAC, the answer arrived in 30 seconds. And it's pretty remarkable how quickly computers shrunk. In just 50 years, people were making computers that were much more powerful than ENIAC and way, way smaller. We're going to look at how we went from 18,000 bulbs in a machine the size of a huge room to truly teeny computers that fit in your pocket. But first, I've got to help our yak friend get back to where he belongs. Ah, so long! Bye, Molly's! Bye, Manica! Brains, brains, brains. I think now seems like a good time for the... Are you ready, Molly? Yep. Here it is. Molly, what is your guess? I'd say it sounds like someone fiddling with something, like one of those kids' toys where you move the buttons up and down mm. on the little rods. Something to get or that maybe, fidgety. Yeah, maybe like little beads of some sort. Hmm. We'll be back with the answer and give you another chance to guess in just a little bit. We're working on an episode all about the sun. And we want to know who you'd add to the sun squad. So dream up a planet to add to our solar system. What does it look like? What's going on there? Does it have rings or moons or the best frozen yogurt shops? Send us a short recording about it at brainson.org slash contact. So Molly, what planet would you add to our solar system? It would be called Neutra, and it would be one big jungle with all kinds of plants and animals living freely. It would even have a bird made of solid gold. Whoa, I like it. How'd you come up with the name Neutra? I looked up the, I think it's maybe Brazilian word for nature. And then I changed it a little bit. I took out an E. I like it. So if we have future planet naming duties, I'm going to have you do it, if that's okay with you. <laughs> Thanks. Send us your answer at brainson.org slash contact. That's also where you can send drawings, mystery sounds, and questions. Like this one. My name is Theo from Bothell, Washington. My question is, what is the flavor of a root beer? We'll answer that question at the end of the show in the moment of um. And we'll read the latest listeners to be added to the Brains Honor Roll. So keep listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Sitka Seafood Market. Seafood is a great source of long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, which can support heart health. Salmon is one of my favorite foods, and so it's so delightful when a box of amazing quality, beautiful salmon arrives at my door. Sitka Seafood Market sources from small boat fishermen and community-based processors that take great care to provide the highest quality seafood that is wild-caught, sustainably, and ethically harvested. And one of the best parts is Sitka Seafood Market offers a variety of flexible subscriptions that can come monthly or every other month. It's super convenient, so if you're going on vacation, you can pause or you can cancel anytime. I know you'll love it as much as I do. Go to SitkaSeafoodMarket.com and use code MOLLY35 for $35 off your first order of $100 or more. That's SitkaSeafoodMarket.com, promo code MOLLY35 for $35 off your first order of $100 or more. That's SitkaSeafoodMarket.com.
Welcome back to Brains On. I'm Molly. And I'm Molly. And I'm Ruby. It's our pal, Ruby Guthrie. It's Molly Squared. Yeah. So we've learned about how computers work and how they got started, but how did we go from 18,000 bulbs to something that fits inside your pocket? Great question, Molly. And the answer is only five syllables. Hmm. Tiny magic elves? A shrinking machine? Solid guesses, but not quite. The answer is semiconductors. Semiconductor? Like a part-time train conductor? No, a semiconductor is a type of material that can both conduct and insulate electricity. And I know, that's a whole mouthful. But just think of semiconductors like a faucet. They can either flow freely or not at all. Just like a faucet can start and stop the flow of water, semiconductors can help control the flow of electricity. And this was super appealing to people making computers. Although ENIAC was revolutionary, it was super clunky. Scientists were also trying to figure out a more efficient alternative to those 18,000 bulbs. They were experimenting with different semiconductors. In 1947, engineers at Bell Laboratories in New Jersey invented the transistor. It looked like a kooky modern art sculpture, but one you could hold in the palm of your hand. It had a metal base followed by a thin silvery layer of semiconductor called germanium, all stacked with a gold-plated triangle with different springs and wires sticking out. Sounds abstract. It definitely looked it. But simply put, that semiconductor layer changed the intensity of the electrical current as it flowed down the wires through one side of the triangle to the other. Not only was the transistor much smaller compared to the vacuum bulbs, but it also made it easier to either amplify the electrical current or switch between on and off. On and off, just like the binary we talked about earlier. Exactly. These transistors became a crucial part of computer circuits. Circuits are the looped pathways that electricity flows through. There are lots of different parts that make up a circuit. Capacitors hold a charge. Resistors slow the flow. And transistors can start and stop a charge. Like a light switch. Right. At first, these circuit elements were divided into individual components. But that was changing. A variety of different engineers and scientists were working to make smaller electronics using semiconductors. One of those people was American engineer Jack Kilby. In 1958, Kilby compacted a whole circuit of transistors, capacitors, and resistors onto a thin blue rectangle the size of a postage stamp, all made from germanium, just like at Bell Labs. He called this the integrated circuit. Connecting everything on a small surface meant the electricity could travel faster, making everything more efficient. This was the world's first microchip. Around the same time, physicist Robert Noyce had the same idea, but decided to use a different semiconductor called silicon. Silicon is a major ingredient in sand, so it's one of the most common elements on Earth. But microchips are actually made of silicon that comes from underground. The silicon chip was more practical, as well as more accessible to the world. Suddenly, you could have just as many on-off switches as you had with those 18,000 bulbs. But you could fit them on a tiny stamp-sized chip. 
This is where things really took off. Microchips started showing up everywhere, in the Air Force, pocket calculators, not to mention personal computers. Picture this, a tiny, thin, metallic square wafer, just the size of a fingernail. At first, it looks just like a grid. Like a tiny tech waffle. Let's whip out the old zoom ray and get a little closer, shall we? If you zoom in, it looks like a map filled with layers and layers of overlapping roads. These roads are actually circuits, and they're filled with transistors. At first, we could only etch a few transistors on each chip. I mean, these are tiny etchings. However, as manufacturing and technology evolved, we developed better etching tools and techniques and could fit more things on a smaller surface. Since the 1960s, the number of transistors per chip would double about every two years. Today, there are billions of transistors on a single microchip. Mind blown. Yeah, thinking about it definitely makes my head explode. Okay, so microchips led to more innovation and smaller devices, but how do they work? Microchips are basically the brain to our phones, tablets, and laptops. They keep track of following those binary instructions, as well as store all of our precious files. To help us better understand how it all works, I talked to Bettina Baer. She teaches computer science at Ohio State University. There's just so many different kinds of things to remember. And computers break all of that memory work into the stuff that you need to know immediately and the stuff that you want to store for a while. Let's start off with the immediate stuff. We call this RAM. Bah, did somebody call me? First a yak, now a ram? I find it's best to just go with it. Oh, hey there, ram. I didn't mean to summon you. I'm talking about random access memory, or ram for short. Oh, common mistake. Happens more than you'd think. Like I was saying, ram, the computer kind, is the way your computer stores things that are happening in real time. Random access memory is for all of the things that you're thinking about and doing in the moment. Um, so where is my mouse on the screen? What applications are open? What did I type recently? All of that information is stored electronically on a memory chip. Let's get that zoom ray again. If we zoom ray on a RAM chip, we'll see billions of capacitor cells. Think of capacitors like teensy tiny buckets that are filled with electricity. If the bucket is full, they're charged, representing a one. And if they're empty, it represents a zero. Just like that binary on and off. Right. So when you turn your computer on, it starts reading all of its instructions, filling and emptying the binary buckets at super speed. If you shut off your computer, unplug it from the wall, all of that stuff goes away. So if we power down, all of the capacitors empty their charge and the memory is lost. What about files we want to keep? Like photos with my family? Or my thousands of memes? Yes, we definitely want to keep those. So your external information could be stored in solid state, um, which is like your flash drive. And for that, these are our physical pieces of circuitry that hold your data. These drives work a lot like RAM, 
Instead of capacitors, they have transistors that are either charged or have no charge. The only difference is when you turn off your computer, the transistors hold their charge and save your data. Oh, my memes are safe. Ooh, that was close. We've come quite a way since punch cards and vacuum bulbs. Now, memory chips use electrical signals to mark the on and off with ones and zeros. Today, microchips continue to shrink in scale, but the possibilities are growing from smartphones to the International Space Station. Just imagine if the makers of the ENIAC could see our tiny pocket computers. They'd be like, mind blown. Thanks for sharing, Ruby. Anytime. Hey, Ram, want to grab a bite? As long as it's the food kind, all this talk about chips has worked up my appetite. Okay, Molly, let's take another listen to the mystery sound. Here it is again. All right. Before you were thinking fidgety, beads, something. What new thoughts do you have? I'd say I'm trying to fit it in with the computers. Mm. And I something Chinese rings a bell for me. Mm. I don't know what it is. Well, here is the answer. That was the sound of me adding 20 numbers on my abacus. So, Molly, do you know what an abacus is? Aren't they like a Chinese tool for doing math? Yes. And actually, they were used in lots of other countries, too, but definitely in China. And, you know, you were right because there are little beads on the abacus. So you were hearing someone someone moving beads. So, yeah, so computers, you know, were first invented to help do math. But thousands of years before computers, people invented this other tool, the abacus, to help them do calculations. So, yes, they used it in China, but it was also used in Japan and Russia and Mexico. So let's find out a little bit more about how an abacus works. My name is Catherine. I am a student from the Chinese American Abacus Association, and I'm from Castro Valley. So an abacus is this mathematical tool that um, has beads and a frame. There are five beads in each row, and there are several rows on an abacus. It depends on the size of the abacus for the number of rows. Each bead is worth one number, basically. There's one bead at the top that's separated from all the other four, and that counts as the number five. So the bead at the top is worth five. In the middle of the abacus, there's a dot, which is basically the ones place. And then if um, you go to the left, that's the tens place. So if you wanna add like 11 plus 20, you'll have one bead up in the tens place and one bead up in the ones place. And then to add 20, you'll add two in the tens place and zero in the ones place, because 20 is two and zero. Catherine first started using an abacus in kindergarten, and now she competes in abacus competitions. Part of the competition uses an abacus, and part of it is mental math. She actually just imagines using the abacus to do math really, really fast inside her head. So when you do mental math, you need to understand an abacus. Mental math is basically the abacus, except the abacus is no longer in front of you, and it's inside of your mind, and you need to remember where the beads are and what beads you have already placed. Doing abacus in math is really helpful if you have a problem like 870 times 14. Um, Some people will take out a calculator, but instead 
if you learn mental math, you can just do it quickly without taking out a calculator. And the answer is? 1,218. Computers take in information, follow instructions, and store their work. Inside a computer, information is boiled down to ones and zeros. That's called binary. People designed the first computers to do more math with fewer mistakes. Many of the earliest computers were absolutely giant. New materials, like semiconductors, made it possible for computers to be small. And today, computers can do all kinds of things in a very little space. That's it for this episode of Brains On. It was produced by Manika Wilhelm, Mark Sanchez, Sandin Totten, and Molly Bloom. We had production help from Christina Lopez and Ruby Guthrie, engineering help from Alex Simpson. Special thanks to Andrew Magoon, David Brock, Anna Wilhelm, Rosie DuPont, and Jack Silvernagel. Now, before we go, it's time for our moment of um. What is the flavor of a root beer? It's likely called root beer because one of the main flavoring agents historically is actually the bark of the root of the sassafras tree. My name is Ashley Rose Young, and I'm a historian at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. So you would go out to a sassafras tree. You can find them all along the eastern part of the United States. And you would cut off pieces of the bark along the root of the tree, and you would steep that. And it wasn't just the sassafras tree. People could add in, you know, at least a dozen other ingredients historically that can include uh, berries, flowers, other plants. There's a wide variety of flavorings that could go into root beer, especially if we look back to uh, the traditional indigenous culinary practices prior to Europeans arriving in the United States. And of course, each family had its own recipe. So one of the men who's attributed with kind of popularizing root beer in American culture was a man named Charles Hires. He came up with a powder that would include 16 different ingredients, including that sassafras root. So you would add sugar, yeast, and water to this powder that he sold for in 25 cent packets. And you would let that kind of sit for 12 hours and ferment slightly. It would foam naturally. And, uh, you know, after 12 hours, you would have five gallons of root beer um, to enjoy. But he actually wanted to call it root tea originally. What's funny is that he also tried to create a syrup for root beer that could then be sent to the soda shops back in the day where they would add it to soda water to serve to customers. But that liquid concentrate didn't work. It was too foamy and it kind of caused issues at the soda parlors. The solution that they came up with was to use barrels and create the root beer in advance and then ship that to the soda shop. So if you kind of associate root beer with barrels, it kind of goes back to that issue of how foamy sassafras bark can be. So I have personally not had the 
traditional sassafras tea or root beer. What's interesting is that it does have certain medicinal qualities, but if consumed in large quantities, it can actually cause liver damage to the body. And so in 1960, uh, the, the kind of natural oil that comes out when you brew sassafras was banned by the federal government and is no longer allowed to be in any consumable products in the United States. So the, the flavor that we associate with root beer today, it is a sassafras flavor, but it's artificially produced. Um, 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 time to get to the root of our greatness. It's the Brains Honor Roll. These are the incredible listeners who keep this show going by sending in their questions, ideas, mystery sounds, drawings, and high fives. Adrian from Old Greenwich, Connecticut, Adelaide and Graham from Los Angeles, Olive from Kingsport, Tennessee, Innie and Ife from Baltimore, Hillel from Jerusalem, Israel, Pasco from Melbourne, Australia, Kendall and Cameron from Jacksonville, Florida, Theodore from Fort Scott, Kansas, Grayson from Durham, North Carolina, Hannah from Ramsey, Minnesota, Lamb from New London, Connecticut, Lilia from Manhattan Beach, California, Tilly from Tigard, Oregon, Kylie, Trey and Gavin from Blythewood, South Carolina, Liam from Bonnie Lake, Washington, Eleanor from Rockville, Maryland, Lexi from Costa Rica, Niall and Naya from Washington, D.C., Julia from Ontario, Arthur from New Orleans, Chloe from Carmel, Indiana, Hagar from Tel Aviv, Israel, Grace from Grace Lake, Illinois, Keel from Los Angeles, Bayway from Vienna, Virginia, Quetzal from Driftwood, Texas, Isla from Marble, Colorado, Madeline from Cerritos, California, Avery and Colin from Braintree, Massachusetts, Takumi from Salem, Massachusetts, Nolan and Susie from St. Louis, Duway from Coralville, Iowa, Joshua from Irvine, California, Kashyap from Dublin, California, Zihan from Johns Creek, Georgia, Caden Everett and Landon from South Lake, Texas, Davis, Oliver, and Archer from Honolulu, Hawaii, Connor from Rochester, New York, Shruti from Fremont, California, Lila, Juliet, and Eloise from Tampa, Florida, Nevin, Rowan, Aaron, and Corbin from Columbus, Ohio, Logan from Dallas, Texas, Clara from San Francisco, Grayson and Colin from League City, Texas, Colette from New York City, Griffin from Manhattan, Kansas, Stella from Calais, Vermont, Chahel from Rochester, Minnesota, Braun from Overland Park, Kansas, Andrew from Manhattan, Kansas, Olivia from Seaside, California, Megan from Evanston, Illinois, David from Portland, Oregon, Eve, Meg, Lilia, Dot, Bess, Maria, Cora, and Wick from Lucaston, Australia, Penny from Albemarle, North Carolina, Liam from Aurora, Colorado, Odessa from Minneapolis, Teddy from Memphis, Tennessee, Gabby from Georgia, Miles from Port Orchard, Washington, Eleanor from Calabasas, California, Harvey from St. Paul, Minnesota, Jonathan, Noah, and Boaz from Castate, California, Audrey from Eden Prairie, Minnesota, Wesley from Everett, Washington, Clara from Perth, Australia, Leon and Esther from Arlington, Virginia, and Trexton, Loxley, Kesslin, and Rylan from Buffalo, New York. Brains On will be back soon with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening.